Testament. Go on with what David said about Rebecca. We love you. Wish you wouldn't leave us. I'm proud of you and I'm proud of what you're doing and that you're getting to go, but um, it's been such a delight to have you. So I would not have watched that ridiculous movie for anybody else. <laughs> so, God's speak. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, the last part of the chapter. If you have a Bible or want to follow along, the same text is there in the bulletin. It's the famous passage about Jesus walking on the water. Um, at least it's famous in country music circles. You hear it gets referenced a lot in songs for some reason. This stands out to people when they think about Jesus and his life, uh, him walking on the water. It's uh, we've talked a lot about miracles already as we've been going through this gospel of Mark, as he's explaining kind of what Jesus was doing and announcing his mission and carrying it out. A lot of miracles, healings, and someone was resurrected. Um, there demonic episodes and things, and so we've talked a little bit about that. If you're, if the whole idea of the miraculous is difficult for you, I'd love to have a side conversation with you about that, uh, but I don't want to rehash all of that old ground. One thing we've noticed, though, is the signs aren't just arbitrary. It's not like uh, they're not gee whiz moments uh, where like a magic trick would be that wows and amazes uh, the crowds. Uh, the miracles are almost always signs. Uh, this is something you need to see to understand who Jesus is or to understand what he's come into the world to do. And so when you look at the miracles, after you get past the, the holy cow part, like how did that happen? How could he have done that? Uh, what you really are asking is, what does this mean? Like, why did he do this? And what am I supposed to take away from it? What were the disciples supposed to learn from what he was doing when he did these things? And so that's what we're going to do today when we look at uh, why Jesus... Uh, walked on the water to his disciples. And the why in this case, I think pretty clearly, is that um, you need to be able to learn how to trust Jesus when your circumstances are really vexing. And he doesn't seem to do anything to change them. It's hard when you're rowing against the wind, as the disciples were, to really feel or even remember that Jesus is for you and that he's good. And so kind of the point of the walking on the water episode that we're going to look at is that uh, the waves are often against us, but Jesus never is. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, come and meet with us. Uh, We're here because we need and want to know you. Uh, We want reality in our life with you. And we ask that you would uh, overcome the obstacles and prejudices that we carry in with us. Open our hearts and minds to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, beginning at verse 45 of Mark 6. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. 
For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. But when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. When I'm preparing a sermon, I always think that my interesting musical references uh, will resonate. And then whenever I stand here, I think, nobody here listens to Leonard Cohen. <laughs> so, trust me, if you don't listen to Leonard Cohen, he's a pretty compelling songwriter and singer. And uh, he died not too long ago. He was 82. His last album was entitled, You Want It Darker. And it was basically a wrestling with God. Trying to come to terms with uh, what religious faith might have meant, did mean to him at some time, might mean in the future, trying to sort it all out. And, and the album was like a psalmist wrestling with God, trying to sort out, I don't understand you, I don't understand what you're doing, uh, I'm desperate to understand what you're doing, but I'm at kind of a loss right now. Um, because... The, kind of the premise of the album is he feels abandoned by God. He, he feels like what he's tried to hope in hasn't really come through for him in his life or whatever his approach has been. It hasn't really been satisfying. And he's looking for some kind of detente with God or he's looking for some kind of way to be reconciled if that's possible with him. Something solid to trust. And so because God seems not to care to him, he has lines in songs like this. He sings about a million burning candles for the help that never came. Uh, and it seems because God doesn't care, he says, if, uh, if you're the dealer, let me out of the game. I don't understand you. I'm sort of afraid and sort of mad at you and the way that my life has gone. Um, and he said, basically, it seems like, God, you want it darker. I look at my life, it feels like you seem, you seem to want it darker. And then he kind of, you know, grouses about that. I'll go along with you. We'll, we'll snuff out the flame if you want it darker, if that's how you really are. But, you know, the suffering in the world, suffering in his own life, uh, really pressed down on him to say, I don't see how my faith is tenable. Uh, given what I observe in my circumstances in life. It's very poignant, very beautiful music. It reminds me a lot of the Psalms, though, where you see the, uh, the, soul, the psalmist arguing with God and saying, how long are you going to let injustice go on? How long are you going to let violence go on and not do anything about it? Don't you see? Don't you care? Does it matter at all to you? Um, you know, you have, you have these wrestlings, and usually they have kind of a happy ending uh, at, at the end where... You know, the psalmist comes back and says, but I realize that, you know, over time these things really do work out and justice will prevail and you really do see and you really do care. The 88th psalm isn't like that. It's one of the psalms that just ends where the psalmist says, I don't see what you're doing. I don't like what I see. I don't know what to make of it. The end. Yeah. And sort of leaves you in that. And that's kind of how Leonard Cohen does with his album. But 
the trick and thing for disciples, people who would be followers of Jesus, is figuring out how do you how do you learn to trust him when the wind is against you? When if you could read the tea leaves of your circumstances, you would conclude he's not really for me. Uh, he's not very interested in helping me. Um, and as much as I've asked him to, he won't he won't change what I need changed in my life. And uh, I feel like I'm rowing against the wind and making progress uh, heavily, or however he said it there, you know, not very fast. And it feels like the night's going on forever, and I'm just still rowing, and things aren't changing. How do you trust him then? And the thing is, we don't know very much about it. We don't know all the reasons God does things. Very few of them. Like, we know a couple of things that he's told us, but that's all we know. And when we start guessing about what he's doing, we tend to be lousy at guessing, right? You know, so it's like, I, here's what I think God's really doing in my life through this terrible trial that I'm going through. Well, you're probably wrong when you guess, right? You know, you don't know. And so the trick is to try to take the things that you do know that you've been told by Jesus, what he's promised you, and hold on to that. And uh, cling to it and to believe it, but also to feel it a little bit so that you will be able to existentially experience the idea that even if the waves are against me, Jesus never is. Alright? He never is against me. And so let's look at that a little bit through the disciples' experience here um, and think about what's going on with them. Um, if you've been keeping up with our episodes here, they've had a wild day. Right? Um, they they come back from a mission trip that was a wild, kind of a crazy mission trip where they weren't given any money or food or a change of clothes or anything like that, uh, presumably to sort of put them under pressure to build their faith. But it was, it was a lot emotionally to experience, you'd figure. And as soon as they come back, Jesus says, okay, we're going on a retreat. And they go, have this retreat, but all these people show up and spoil the retreat. And so you know, they have to start helping again, giving instead of receiving. And you know, they're already spent and exhausted. And then Jesus tells them to feed the crowd. And, and then he does the miracle of feeding the 5,000 people. And before the crowd even is dispersed, he makes them get in the boat. It says in verse 45, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. Because you could think they were probably a little reluctant to go row across the lake into the wind at this point. But he's insistent. They go... And they make headway painfully, which, you know, might be the description of your life in different periods of your life, making headway painfully. And it says, like, it almost it sounds like it was before evening came that they left. Jesus comes out walking on the water sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Right, so I don't know how many hours they've been rowing. But I don't know what kind of mood you'd be in if you've been rowing against the wind for all that time when you could have maybe just stayed. You know, on that side for the evening, I would be pretty frustrated and exhausted and angry and probably a little afraid if you're still not there with all this effort. And uh, while you're out there rowing against the wind in the middle of the night not making much progress, you probably have time to think, like, what was he thinking? Like, why, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Where is he? Um, he sent us out here. Uh, does he even care what's going on with us? I mean... Um, it feels like every time we try to serve him, things go worse in our lives. Like, no good deed goes unpunished. Is that what's going on here? Like, why, why am I in this miserable night rowing against the wind? And they've got time to think about all of these things. And 
presumably, I don't know this, but presumably their conclusion when they try to read the tea leaves of God's providence is, well, he's mad at me. <laughs> he's a band, he, doesn't, he doesn't like me. Um, the wind is against me and Jesus is against me. What else can you conclude? And so when you think about this, try to fill in the gaps with what it is that makes you exhausted and frustrated and weary, that makes you feel half-abandoned or half-condemned. Um, what is it in your life that just nags you this way so that you make headway painfully, if at all? Is it a job that you can't get or that you can't lose? Is <laughs> um, frustration of being lonely for a long time because you can't get married? Or being lonely for a long time because you did get married? Yeah. Um, money that is a nagging problem that won't go away, physical addictions and problems. Um, I mean, what is it that makes you frustrated, that makes you think, I don't know if God cares enough about how this feels in my life to change it. You know, I've, asked, I've prayed about it enough times where I feel silly praying anymore. What's the deal? Is he willing to care about what bothers me, about what troubles me so much in my life? Is this just the way it's always going to be, and that's just how it is, and I have to learn to live with it? Um, what am I supposed to conclude? So everybody has some things like that, and it seems to me that the more you grow as a Christian, kind of the more things you get like that, because apparently it helps grow our faith. But at first, when you have a nagging issue like that in your life that won't go away, when you're rowing against the wind, um, your faith in Jesus hurts more than helps because you realize, oh, this isn't just the way things are. He could fix this. <laughs> and he's not. And that's kind of a Leonard Cohen album. <laughs> it's like he's, he's like, I, I could handle this better if I didn't have this nagging sense of hope that you were going to be nicer to me. You know, that my life was going to go better because of you. Um, he says it this way. He says, If thine is the glory, mine must be the shame. That's a little bitter. It's a lot bitter. But, um, <laughs> but you understand what he's saying. And he talk, and it's the other, has another line that says, There's a lover in the story, but the story is still the same. Meaning that there's a lover in the story, that Jesus is there, <laughs> made me hope that things were going to be more different than they are. So the disciples rowing against the wind, that's a pretty common experience for all of us trying to live a life following Jesus. Uh, we thought the wind's against us, and we assume that Jesus probably is too. So what is Jesus doing in this? Because we get some insight into it. Um, he's sure pushing on these guys. Um, I mean, he's putting them in situations where he knows they're going to be exhausted. And, you know, if you're like me, you just rise to the occasion and, and are your most uh, delightful best when you're exhausted and anxious and frustrated. And, you know, so he's putting them under the gun here, um, presumably to help build their faith. But what it says he does is he sends them off on the boat, and then he gets rid of the crowd, and he goes up and he prays. Intercedes for them, is Paul's term in Romans. Like he prays for his people. He's praying for them. Um, and it feels... <laughs> If I was rowing, I would think this way. It feels a little unfair that the people who just barged in, the 5,000 people that came there to be fed, they get taken care of and fed. 
And every time we land somewhere, like we're going to Genesaret or Genesaret, however you say, they were, uh, you know, all these people are going to come and get healed. And the crowds get all this good stuff from Jesus. And here we are, the close ones, trying to follow him and trying to serve him. And we get waves and all night rowing and no help. He's not even here. How it seems. But it says in verse 48, um, he saw that they were making headway painfully. And that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> he saw. Like he's not unaware. He knows what's going on with them. And he prayed for them. What do you suppose he prayed for them? Give them traveling mercies and let them make it to the other side, please. Maybe. Probably not. I mean, you know, this is Jesus. And one prayer he could have prayed was, uh, like the one we've heard him pray before, which is, peace be still and stop the wind, like he did when he got in the boat. But that's not what he prayed for them. And what they were praying for was not what he was praying for them either, presumably. They probably weren't praying, Lord, I just really want to learn what you're teaching me in this lesson as I'm rowing all night against the wind. You know, they were like, please let this stop. Please let this stop. And that isn't what his intention was. He's trying to build a deeper trust in them for him. And this is how he's going to do it. Um, sort of like when a coach puts the team under pressure, getting ready for an uh, important game where they're likely to be nervous and overmatched. Or like if you're going to go to a hostile stadium in football, a lot of times you'll practice with a bunch of crowd noise pumped into the stadium the week before. I'm told I don't practice football. <laughs> but you know, you're going to prepare by hearing the crowd noise, put the team under pressure and practice so that uh, under the gun they'll be able to handle it better. And it seems like he's teaching them how to live trusting him when things aren't going great for them. Right? It's like the situation we're in. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he says he's gone there and he intercedes for us, that he prays for us now. He probably doesn't pray for us the same things that we pray for ourselves, and that's okay. Like the Lord's Prayer, we're probably right in sync with it on that. But other than that, you know, he, he knows better than we do and sort of uh, takes our prayers like you take your children's requests, you know, under advisement. Uh, you love them, but you're, you're going to do what they need more than just what they want. But he's, when you're under pressure, the disciples are supposed to be able to say he sees, he cares, and he has a plan. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't abandoned me. The wind's against me, but he's not against me. Right? And on one level, I don't, I'm going to say this wrong, so listen to my footnotes, but on one level, if he wanted you to have calm seas, You'd have them. And by that I don't mean that the trials in your life are actually good if you look at it the right way. That's not, that's not true. Uh, I don't mean that um, because God uses something, it's actually really a good thing rather than a bad thing. I don't mean that at all. There are just bad things in our lives that are really genuinely bad. Things that Jesus hates. Things that Jesus came to change and fix. Right? So injustice and oppression and violence and, and abuse and all the things that are wind against us in our lives are not good things. But for a Christian trying to live in faith as he goes through a trial, uh, there is a sense in which you can trust God to say, look, I don't want this and I don't like this, but if, you, if, if this has to be the way it is for me, I need you 
and I need to know you're with me, and I need to know you're for me, and I need your help to go through it. So, um, and that, that's meant for us to have a more tender trust in Jesus rather than a suspicion of him that maybe he's cruel. So, but he is in control. And if he's not in control, trusting him doesn't make very much sense for us when the wind's against us. Um, but that's the thing. When the disciples are supposed to be learning, Jesus is seeming to teach them, um, the wind may be against you, but I'm not against you. And he doesn't just pray for them. He also intervenes. He shows up, and this is when he comes and walks on the water. Um, he doesn't intervene when you want him to. Um, he doesn't intervene as you think he should. <laughs> but he intervenes, right? And sometimes he doesn't intervene in this life. Some of your trials will last until the grave. But they won't last past that. Um, we don't know his timing. But we know he's able and willing to intervene. And in this case he does. Not just to solve the problem of the wind. But to reinforce the lesson for his disciples. And it says he comes to him. It's very strange the way it says it in verse 48. Um, he saw they were making headway about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. It almost sounds like he didn't want them to see him. And that's not what it means. Um, it's actually an allusion to the Old Testament reading we had today, where uh, when Moses wanted a deeper connection with God, he said, I want to see your glory. I want to experience you more fully. Uh, God said, well, you, you sort of can't. Right? You couldn't survive it. But he said, I'll put you in the cleft of this rock and I'll cover your eyes. You can't see the full force of my glory, but you can see the back of me, a veiled version of my glory. I'll bring you closer in. And, and that turned out to be, I'm sure, some sort of an experience for Moses visually, but it was also words. When God passed by Moses, he said, I am Yahweh. That is, I am that I am. God's covenant name. I am. That's who I am. I show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Um, I'm compassionate. You know, that, those are the things he said to Moses as he passed by. What Jesus is doing is for his disciples is the same sort of thing. I'm going to pass by them, not leave them and so they don't see me. I'm going to let them see who I am. And when he passes by them, it's fascinating what he says to them. He sees that they're terrified. And what does he say? It's in verse 50. He says, um, take heart, it is I. Echo of me. I am. I am. He passes by them, showing them his glory and declaring his name, Yahweh, I am. Don't be afraid, he says. Um, that's what he's up to in their lives. Like he's... He is trying to deepen their connection to Him so they'll know who He really is. That He is the Lord of the seas. He's the sovereign God. This human being that they know, that they eat with, is God in human flesh, which is complete category blower. But they're cluing in as they see things like this because He's letting them see His glory, letting them see who He really is. Um, he's the one who hovered over the primordial chaos at the creation. He's the one who treads down the sea. That's who he is. And so they're astounded by this because how could that possibly be, right? How could he be the sovereign Lord 
and a human being at the same time? And we still don't know the answer to that. Um, we confess that he is, but it's a mystery to us how that can be. Um, but then it says weirdest thing. Verse 52 says they didn't get, they didn't understand because their hearts were hard, because they didn't understand the loaves. The loaves. Why the loaves? Like, what, what about the loaves? I would think that was, that sounds like out of left field a little bit. What did they learn with the loaves? They learned that Jesus is compassionate towards them, and he moves out of mercy towards people who need him, and that he's the provider, and he can provide beyond any natural resources that we have. Those are the lessons that, basically, what they learned is, they're learning who Jesus is, but in the loaves they learned who Jesus is for them. Like, yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is God in human flesh. But he is your Savior. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who takes care of you. Um, internalizing it experientially is what they're finding out with this. So, they're really trying to, he's really trying to say, look, I want you to know what it means to live in my care and to feel safe and secure because I'm taking care of you, because you're in my hands. I want you to feel that. I want you to know what it means. And that seems to be what he's emphasizing. What are they supposed to believe after this? When they hear all this? What, what's their takeaway supposed to be? I mean, basically, he just tells them one thing. Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The wind is often against you. I'm never against you. Alright? You can trust me even when the wind is against you. Um, so you have to talk to yourself. They have to tell themselves when they're rowing... I hate this. I don't want this. I'd change it in a second if I would. I wish God would change it if he would. Um, but he's not. But I know he sees me. I know he's praying for me. I know he's after more in my life than just calm seas. He has some bigger goals there that I probably need. You know, it's maybe a violent path for me. Um, and I know these things. And I know he's good. I know he's good. I know he's not against me. Um, we read in Romans 8 the passage that tells us that Jesus is praying for us all the time it says if God did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all freely how will he not also along with him give us all good things to enjoy I've given you my son I'm not going to be withholding and stingy to you now and that's what the disciples somehow need to be able to feel when they're exhausted and when everything's going against them that uh, God's not withholding and he's not against them. I don't know how, um, what Leonard Cohen got sorted out before he died. He died pretty soon after that album. Um, I hope he sorted out a lot. I really like him. Um, but he's an easy person for me to trust because he's somebody who's looked into the abyss. And um, it's easy for me to take him seriously. Um, he doesn't talk about the faith in, in any kind of a trivial way. You know, he's never going to sing, I've got that joy, joy, joy all the time, time, time. You know? Um, but I wanted to have joy. Um, but whatever faith he had was forged rowing against the wind. And I tend to trust people whose faith is forged rowing against the wind. That uh, They've learned something a little more solid and substantial about what it means to trust in Jesus. If you're, if you're having to row against the wind right now, and if you're not, you soon will be, I'm sure. Um, it's not because Jesus is against you. 
Right? It's because he wants you closer in to him. He wants your faith to have a solidity and beauty that it doesn't have yet. Uh, he wants to show you his glory. The wind is often against you, but Jesus never is. Now let's pray. Father, you know uh, how difficult it is for us to trust you at times, knowing as little as we know. We thank you for what you have told us and what we've seen in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that uh, you've come to our rescue in him and that it's safe to trust you. So I pray that you would deepen all of our trust in you. Uh, we want that. Uh, we dread what that might entail, but we do want it. And we trust you to be good. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's stand and confess our faith together using the Hogwarts Catechism. Uh, Christians, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by the Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen. Please be seated.